Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he had taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits when they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. The Gospel of Mark is action-packed. Many writers have commented that Mark seems to be in a hurry. He's constantly moving the action along. And as you read the first three chapters of the Gospel of Mark, in other versions, the English word immediately or related synonyms jump off the page. It's used over and over and over again. This is because the Greek word euthus is used 41 times in the Gospel of Mark, but is often omitted in the NIV. In our text for today, in verse 21, we'll meet with one instance of this favorite word of Mark's immediately. If you read the ESV, it says, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. The word immediately powerfully impresses upon us the planned swiftness with which Christ set out to run his course. Helps picture the events as one right after the other. There's an urgency to what Jesus is doing and preaching. And we find this urgency expressed in Jesus' own words in John 9, verse 4. As long as it is day, it behooves us to do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Thus, Jesus energetically sets out to do the will of his Father with urgency. And we must ask, is this the way we conduct our lives for Christ our King. Now, the author Mark focuses primarily on the events of Jesus' early ministry in the region of Galilee. Mark pictures Jesus as a servant, one who moves from task to task, doing everything in his power to accomplish his Father's mission for his life, and doing so immediately, exactly, and joyfully, as directed. Now, in the last few sermons preached from the book of Mark, we heard how Jesus, now anointed by God, the Holy Spirit at his baptism, and fresh from successfully battling Satan in the desert, begins his public ministry in the Galilee. Last week, we heard that the core of Jesus' ministry was the good news of God. Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God was near and his hearers were to repent and believe the good news. Throughout his book, Mark presents questions surrounding Jesus' authority. Why does Jesus do what he does? 
For whom does he speak and act? Who has authorized his ministry? Mark wants us to know from the outset that Jesus' public ministry will be a contested one. His person, his presence, his words, his deeds threaten other spiritual forces that claim authority over people's lives. And these other authorities have something to lose, and they will not go down without a fight. So I want to examine from our text the authority and power of our Lord Jesus. We will look first at the importance of Sabbath worship. Second, the authority of Jesus' preaching. Third, the content of Jesus' preaching. Fourth, the authority of Jesus' person. Fifth, people's response to Jesus. And sixth, your response to Jesus' person, preaching, and power. First, the importance of Sabbath worship. Jesus and at least four of his recently called disciples, two sets of brothers, James and John, and Peter and Andrew, traveled to Capernaum and immediately go together into the synagogue to worship on the Sabbath day. This was Simon and Andrew's hometown. But we can infer from the way in which the sickness of Peter's wife's mother is later mentioned in verse 29 that Peter and the others didn't go first to his house until after the synagogue worship was over. Now, synagogues played a vital role in Jewish religious life, both then and now. The synagogue was essentially the local church of that day. Every community of Jews containing at least 10 families was required by rabbinical law to form a synagogue. Now, the synagogue was the center of life for the local Jewish community, just as our church should be for us. In obedience to the fourth commandment, people gathered together there for worship, which was always on their Saturday. And this was Jesus' habit. Luke 4, verse 16 tells us that as a good, God-fearing Jew, Jesus made it his custom, his habit to go to the synagogue and attend worship services there. And Jesus expects no less from us. In fact, we're commanded in the Bible to be faithful to attend to the assembling of ourselves together. And we're told this is both to motivate one another, spur one another on to love and good works. And the writer of Hebrews says that we should not be giving up meeting together as the habit of some people is. And all the more as we see the day of Jesus' coming approaching. Here in this church, we do not preach often on church attendance, but regular church attendance is part of the covenant agreement we make when we join as members. This is not a legalism, for if you love God, you will gladly keep his commandments. And he commands us in Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If you love the Lord Jesus, you should be in his house with his people at every opportunity. If you love Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you love worshiping him along with your brothers and sisters in Christ and hearing his word preached to you. So the Lord's day is instituted in God's word 
as a positive moral perpetual commandment, binding all God's people in all ages. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, kept the Sabbath, and so should we. And ever since the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on Sunday morning, the Sabbath day is to be kept on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath. So if you love God, you will keep this, his commandment. God is to be loved and wholeheartedly worshipped in the place and manner that he's appointed for all New Testament Christians, namely church on Sunday morning, not Saturday evening. That is, if you're a vital member connected to Christ. Additionally, we ought to go to church because it's a witness to those around us. On Sunday morning, when your friends and family and neighbors see you head out to go to church, it will remind them of where they need to be. And we also ought to go to church because if you aren't there, you'll miss out on something that can never be duplicated. Consider for a moment the Apostle Thomas, who wasn't with the other apostles when Jesus appeared as the risen Christ. But first and foremost, you should go to church because it's the right thing to do, and it honors the Lord. There should be no debate about it in your home. When it's time for church, everyone in the family ought to get ready and then go to church, not golfing, not fishing, not sleeping in. You see, Sunday worship speaks volumes about you. If you regularly miss church, you are saying, I don't care enough for God and his worship and his people to be there. Second, the authority of Jesus preaching. From what we know and read about synagogue services, they could be dull and boring and full of people who could be very hostile to Christ. But that did not stop Jesus from going. A typical church service then involved prayer and the reading of scriptures and a teaching by a rabbi or scribe. Now, synagogue rulers were entrusted with explaining the scriptures. Like ministers today, they were to do their best to present themselves to God as men approved, workers in the word who do not need to be ashamed and who correctly handle the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 However, the sermons of many rabbis were usually hair-splitting disputations and endless argumentation about nothings, typically delivered in a dry, sleep-inducing manner. The scribe or rabbi would stand and read a portion of the scripture, and then he'd sit down and begin to endlessly quote other rabbis, giving their opinions, but never really telling the people what God required of them. When the rabbis and scribes taught, nothing of eternal value took place. The teaching did not bring about a life change in the people who heard it. The scribes majored on trivialities. They elevated the traditions of men above the word of God. They were worried about tithing mint and other spices, and then how and when to wash your hands. Thus, the synagogue rulers took the Sabbath that was intended by God to be a blessing and transformed it by their legalism into a heavy burden that the people had to put up with. Usually the people left the synagogue in the same spiritual darkness in which they had arrived. Apart from the reading of scriptures, there was no spiritual light 
or truth in the service. And it was into this atmosphere that Jesus came preaching the word of God. The people in Capernaum had arrived at the synagogue that Sabbath morning, expecting to hear their own rabbi deliver another one of his never-ending string of rabbinical quotations about trivialities. What they got instead was something hugely different. When Jesus opened his mouth that day, the wearing formalism went out of the service, and the hearts and minds of the people in attendance were gripped when they heard a voice that was spiritually alive, speaking as one who knew God and who did God's will. They realized that a true prophet was among them. Jesus' words admitted no debate. There could be no theological discussion or reflection on their correctness, and Christ needed no proof for his argument for what he was preaching because he was the authority. And we know from the four Gospels that Jesus always spoke of weighty matters, such as righteousness and doing God's will, heaven and hell, life, death, and eternity. When the people heard Jesus' sermon, they knew they were hearing words of eternal value that carried God's weight behind them. For Jesus taught as one possessing authority, authority from God, that is. This means Jesus spoke as a man who knew what he was talking about and with an assurance that he spoke God's word with the Holy Spirit's anointing. As a co-equal part of the Trinity who had inspired the scriptures in the first place, Jesus was exegeting his own word. He spoke with authority because as the God-man, all authority was his. Hence, based on his authority, he could say, truly, truly, I say unto you. The scribes could only quote each other. Their authority was at best derivative. Jesus' words, however, came through divine understanding and Holy Spirit power. What Jesus was speaking and expressing is not secondhand theology. His words were the very words of God. What Jesus, in effect, is doing for these people was bringing to them in himself the person of God. He was bringing God's absolute claim upon their lives. And that is what both awed them and disturbed them so much that they didn't know what to do with it. Christ's teaching is unique in this respect. He doesn't argue his case. He declares he seeks no support from others. He alone is sufficient for us. No other man has the right to say that about himself. He alone is the creator and sustainer of life. He alone is the light of the world. And to all who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. Thus, Luke Observe this electric effect of Jesus' teaching. In Luke 4, 32, he says, They were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with authority and power. Jesus' preaching that day left the people amazed, struck as if by a blow of astonishment. They were left dumbfounded. Their mouths were hanging open with amazement. Third, the content of Jesus' preaching. We also heard last week from 
the immediately prior text in Mark, that Jesus proclaimed the good news of God. That is, the kingdom of God is near. So it follows that people should repent and believe the good news that the Messiah has come to save his elect people from their sins. By repentance, we are to give glory to our creator, whom we've offended. By faith, we're to give glory to our redeemer, who's come to save us from our sins. Jesus joined these two together, and no one should try to delink them. Those whom Christ calls must leave all to follow him, and by his grace, he makes them willing to do so. Not that we must join a monastery in the desert, but we must not be consumed with the things of this world. We must forsake everything that is against our duty to serve Christ. Things that would hurt our souls. In all things, Christ must be our Lord. He must be first in our lives, even over family ties. And while today's text does not tell us what Jesus preached that morning, we know that a week or two earlier in the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus preached from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. We see that in Luke 4. We know that Jesus came to preach the gospel to the poor. The poor refers to those who are destitute of wealth, our position, our influence, and honor, those who are lowly and needy, lacking and helpless, but especially those who are poor in spirit. This refers to the spiritual condition of those who know they are sinners and know they cannot save themselves from their sin. Jesus did not come to save the proud, the high and mighty, but he came to save the man, the woman, who will cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus came into this world to save and change lives. He came to offer hope to the hopeless, help to the helpless, and life to the lifeless. He came with the good news that there is love and hope and salvation to the person who will seek him with all humility. So I ask, are you spiritually needy and hopeless today? Do you need a savior who will change your life? There is the God-man, Jesus, who will take you just as you are and save your soul and change your life. And it won't cost you a dime. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe on his name, he gives the right to become children of God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Additionally, Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. The word brokenhearted speaks of those who are broken down in pieces, trampled and crushed in the dust underfoot. It speaks of those who are oppressed by sin and Satan. Jesus came to offer healing to people that are in such a condition. For if your heart is broken by the cruelties of life, if you've been shattered by the effects of sin, if you've been crushed underfoot by Satan, Jesus is offering health and life and healing this morning. He can take your wounded life, your crushed spirit. He can bind you up with his love and grace, and he will take you as you are, hurts and all, 
and he will give you new life in him. Ephesians 2 tells us, because of his great love, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in trespasses, transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. Relatedly, Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. The word captives literally means those held at spear point. The images of one who's been captured by the enemy and slated for slavery or execution. They've been captured and the enemy holds the spear against their heart. One thrust and the captive dies. He will bleed out and be gone. So Jesus is talking about people who are held in captivity at spear point by the devil in the grip of sin. By birth, all people are sinners. As sinners, they are enemies of God. As lost sinners, they each stand opposed to God and his will. They are guilty of violating God's law, guilty of rejecting God's son, guilty of turning a deaf ear to his gospel. And as a result, they're doomed to judgment and even hell itself. Friend, if you're lost and separated from God, then you're in the grip of the enemy. Sin Like a great spear is pressed against your soul. One thrust and you will die in your lost condition and go to hell, where you will spend all eternity in that horrible place. You'll be isolated from God and isolated from all that is good and pleasant and blessed. There will be no reprieve. There will be no release. There will be nothing but pain and suffering and anguish and fire for all eternity. But praise be to God, Jesus offers deliverance and freedom to sinners in this life. The word deliverance means release from bondage or imprisonment, forgiveness and pardon of sins, letting the prisoner go as if he'd never been convicted or committed to prison. It means the full cancellation of the penalty because Jesus paid it for you. Likewise, Jesus preached that he came to give sight to the blind. The four Gospels tell us Jesus healed blind eyes while he was here on earth. But his primary mission, and this is it, to open eyes that are spiritually blinded. That is the condition of everyone who does not know Jesus as Savior and Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever so that he cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelievers are even blind to their condition. They do not know they're lost. They think they can simply turn over a new leaf, get a little religion, do a few good deeds. And everything will be all right. In this way, they're blind and deceived. 
When Jesus comes to a blind soul, he opens that person's eyes and causes him to see himself as the sinner he truly is. This is called conviction. And it causes the person to see the depth of his depravity. This is an efficacious work of the Holy Spirit in the minds of God's elect sinners. That person begins to realize just the awful cost that he's about to pay because of his own sin. God, the Holy Spirit, gives this person a new heart that longs for a way out and points him to Jesus. He shows that person that Jesus died for him because Jesus loved him more than he loved his own life. We see that in Romans 5, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This man under conviction is made to understand the power of Jesus to save him. He's caused to know that Jesus is not dead, but alive and willing to forgive his sins and change his life. Jesus gives him a new spiritual vision and new life. And when this man, this woman acts on this information and receives Jesus as savior, he and she simultaneously will submit their life to Jesus as Lord. But remember, Jesus saves by his grace. Likewise, Jesus came to set free those who are bruised and oppressed. The word bruised refers to those who are broken, shattered, and smitten. It speaks of those who are battered by the power and the effects of sin in their lives. We've already touched on sin's power to destroy and devastate, but we cannot stress too strongly the truth that there is no good in sin. There is nothing but, in the end, devastation and destruction, both in this life and in the life to come. Sin destroys youth. It robs people of their innocence. It ruins marriages and breaks up homes. Sin brings death, disease, and damnation into a person's life. Sin will steal your testimony, rob you of your joy and silence your worship. Sin will harden your heart and sear your conscience and drive you away from God. Sin's a deceiver, a destroyer, and a damner. It will take everything of eternal value and leave you with nothing but severe disappointment, disillusion, and devastation. Sin in any form or in any quantity will ruin you both in this life and in the life to come. But Jesus came to heal the wounds of his people who've been beaten up and battered. He came to set them free. And he has the power to deliver you from what binds you. He will change your life if you will but turn to him in repentance and faith. You do not have to be a slave to sin, the flesh and the devil. You do not have to live one more minute As a slave, Jesus can unlock the door of your prison cell and grant you freedom. 
He can apply the balm of grace to the wounds of sin and make you whole. Jesus paid it all. Moreover, Jesus came preaching the year of the Lord's favor. And this is still the message today. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus invites all who will to come to him by faith. He invites these broken, battered, bruised people to come to him for deliverance and hope and blessing. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So I exhort you, come to Jesus. He is able. He is able to save you from all your sin and to make you his own. Fourth point, the authority of Jesus' person. We could say his power to save Jesus not only displayed his authority plainly in the words that he spoke, but in the deeds that he did. Jesus' power to save is seen in part by what was foreshadowed in the deliverance of the demoniac that day. Jesus' authority was both challenged and testified to by the demon itself. And it should not astonish us that King Jesus and his ministries immediately opposed by the devil and his host of demons. And it should not astound us that the demon-possessed man was in church that morning to try and disrupt Jesus' preaching. You see, Satan hates the message of the gospel, the message of salvation to sinners who are enslaved by him. And so Jesus is preaching this message of salvation from the kingdom of darkness and deliverance into the kingdom of God. Just then, immediately Jesus is interrupted by this demon-possessed man. The demon uses the man's vocal cords, and he suddenly cries out, Ha! What do you want from us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He is speaking, of course, of other demons, but perhaps even of all the people sitting there. Have you come to destroy us? He addresses Jesus as from Nazareth. Now, anyone there in the synagogue could have known that Jesus was from Nazareth, but few would have made the connection with Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, where it's prophesied that the Messiah would come from Galilee, the district of Nazareth and Capernaum. It says, in the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea and beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. The demon makes this connection and asks, what do you want from us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And the answer is yes. Jesus of Nazareth did come to redeem his people, his elect people from their sins. He did come to condemn Satan and his demons and unredeemed people and send them to hell. Note too that the demon calls Jesus the Holy One of God. Holiness is an eminent characteristic of God and of Jesus as God. For there is none holy as he is holy. 
He is the measure of holiness. Now, the demon's recognition of this exhibits his own unholiness. He snarls at Jesus in an outburst of hatred. Satan and his demons hate God's holiness and moral purity, as do many so-called nice but unsaved people. They're all around us. They find the very presence of Christians among them to be disturbing and oppressive, and they want to shut us out of society. Not only do they want separation of church and state, they want an absolute muzzling of Christians from speaking in public about anything that is contrary to their progressive unholy agenda. For them, good is evil and evil is good. They want nothing to do with this Jesus whom they inwardly recognize is the Holy One of God and therefore their judge and their destroyer. It's interesting to note before we move on that the demon addresses Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, speaking of his humanity. And then he addresses Jesus as the Holy One of God, speaking of his deity. There is no conflict in this. Jesus is fully both. And what is fascinating is that this possessed man more clearly understood who Jesus is than the theologians of his day and most theologians of this day. Strangely, it's possible to recognize Jesus for who he is and what he came to do and what he accomplished and still to hate him all the more. What a miserable condition is for anyone that they should desire to have nothing to do with Jesus as Savior or Lord. It's declaring nothing less than, I desire Satan as my Lord. I desire to be with him in hell for all eternity. It's interesting to note that this demon's theology was very orthodox, but he did not have saving faith. James 2.19 says, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The demon's outburst is prompted by fear. And by wickedness, leave us alone. How many people have told you that? Just leave me alone. Don't talk about this, Jesus. Hopefully that is not your request. You see, a seemingly credible confession of faith in Jesus is worthless without submission to his lordship and rule over your life. Now, Jesus knows that his heavenly father has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. And he wishes no acknowledgement from anyone who speaks with such unholy lips. So we know from the Old Testament that those who bear the vessels of the Lord must be clean. A preacher should be a preacher possessing righteousness. Chapter 125, we hear Jesus in a calm, but very powerful, authoritative voice, rebuke the demon and the man commanding, be quiet, come out of him. Jesus commands the demon to shut up and vacate the premises. And the demon does so immediately and exactly as ordered. This does not infer, however, that immediate and exact obedience alone is the mark of a Christian. A Christian's obedience to godly authority must be exact, immediate, and glad. Therefore, 
I ask, what does your obedience or lack thereof speak about you? Are you truly a Christian? Are you a demon masquerading as one? But praise God, Jesus' teaching authority and power to save rests on who he is, that he is fully God and fully man. This miracle of deliverance is done by his own authority and power. And this is great news, for Jesus is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through faith, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. Next, the people's response to Jesus. We're not told that any one of these people were saved that day. In a sense, they were excited, but their response was ambiguous. It's like going to the theater and seeing Les Mis one more time and and talking about it excitedly. But it does nothing for you. It doesn't save you from even one sin. It's not submission to Jesus. Now, it is true these people's response was different from those in the synagogue in Nazareth a week or two earlier. There, the people were offended when Jesus claimed to be their Messiah, and they rose up as one person to try and kill Jesus. He escaped, but was totally amazed at their unbelief. Similarly, today, there are people who are very offended at the gospel, especially the message that they are condemned before God, their judge. For they hate this God, who's too holy to let them as sinners enter into his heaven. They think it crazy that Jesus is God, who became a man through the virgin birth. They may be willing to admit that Jesus was wrongly tried and executed by his enemies, but that is as far as they'll go. They hate the idea of the cross, that Jesus there endured the wrath of God as a substitute on behalf of his elect people. They cannot tolerate the truth that though Jesus knew no sin, he became sin for us that we might receive the righteousness of God. To them, the resurrection is an impossibility, and they cannot abide the fact that Jesus is physically coming back to judge them and impose the eternal death penalty upon them. To lots and lots of people, what happened in Capernaum that day is not just theater, but sheer, utter nonsense, and they were highly offended. But here in Capernaum, Jesus' reception is different. Immediately, the people go out to tell others about Jesus, what he had preached and what he had done in delivering the demoniac. And so everyone in the territory of Galilee heard about who Jesus is and what he had done. But the question is, are you ambiguous towards Jesus? Are you hostile to this Jesus? Are you willing to embrace him as Savior and Lord? Are you telling your friends and neighbors about who he is and what he's done in your life? Or are you one of those who hates him? But I'm a hopeless case, you say. First, your situation is no more hopeless than the demoniacs was that day. There are simply no hopeless cases when Jesus comes. Regardless of how low into sin you've fallen, regardless how firm the grip Satan may have on you, regardless of the vileness of your sins, 
There is divine power in Jesus to save you and to fully deliver you from Satan's grip and from sin's dominion. The person that the world views as beyond saving is often the very person for whom Christ has come to save. If you look at the Bible, you'll see that case after case, there appears people who are hopeless. But in every case, Jesus is able to save, to heal, and to change lives. And consider the case of Saul of Tarsus in the book of Acts. He hated Christ. He hated Christians. He did everything in his power to destroy the church of that day. He was a kind of Adolf Eichmann. But God drastically saved Saul by his grace and changed his life. The man so violently and vehemently opposed to Jesus became the mightiest weapon in our Lord Jesus' arsenal. So never give up. Jesus has the power to save anyone who repents of his sins and believes the gospel. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come today that they might have life and to have it to the full. So in conclusion, what is your response to Jesus' person and power? I ask you, do you know who Jesus is? Is he just the Jesus of Nazareth to you, a historical figure? Or is he the son of God? If you recognize him as God's son, do you also acknowledge his authority over you? Sometimes people say, I believe Jesus. I believe he's not only the God-man, but also God's son. I believe he went to the cross and bled and died and rose again three days later. I believe he's coming again. I believe the Bible. But the demon in our text believed all that. Such faith is worthless. It will not save you. It will damn you. And perhaps all the more because of the knowledge you have. Martin Luther said, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. What did he mean by that? Well, it's one thing to say that Jesus is a savior. And and then to go on and say Christ is a Lord and that he is a God. But it's an entirely different thing to say he's my savior. He's my Lord. He's my God. I wonder, have you confessed Jesus as your Savior and your Lord? Have you surrendered to his kingship? If not, come to him today and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And all those who call out to him for salvation will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for these rich images of who Jesus is. But may no one be left sitting here simply dazzled by Christ and his person. May we each come to surrender our entire lives, holding back nothing, trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save us, and living for him a life that is joyful. And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.